Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we have a great episode lined up for you tonight. Lots going on in the world, lots going on in the weather, and lots going on here on the show tonight. And of course, that all means we've got to get right into it. So let's go ahead and bring in our co-host, Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. Well, believe it or not, it's supposed to rain here tonight. We haven't had rain since before winter, so we'll see if it actually happens. But I guess that means it's warm enough that it's not going to turn to snow, we hope. So we'll see. What say you, Dan DePodlin? Well, I think there'll be some spots on the front range that get a little bit of snow tonight, but not certainly not a snowstorm by any stretch of the imagination. Some rain showers in places where it's a, where it's warm enough to support rain, but um, certainly a, a break from the snowy, cold winter you've had out there in Colorado, Sam. I think a lot of other places have, uh, in the east have certainly been on the warmer side, um, but you've had a lot of good, good skiing conditions uh, in, in the Rockies and also parts of the uh, western United States this year. Indeed, I think it's been snowier this year than it has been in the past several years. So, so especially for the, that's why we never hear from Kyle because he's always up there in the snow. Um, Miss Becky, hello. Hello, hello. You sound better than you did last week. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> well, we're our three, on it. our three docs are all from the central area, I believe. So uh, what's the weather looking like for them, Ben? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, as, as we record this here on Wednesday evening, there's a, a zone of severe thunderstorms in the, uh, the lower Mississippi Valley, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, or I guess not Alabama, but, but Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, with a, a pretty potent storm that's moving to the northeast through that area that's bringing some uh, severe thunderstorms and damaging winds, and there have been some reports of tornadoes here on on, on Wednesday. On the north side of that, we're going to have a, a pretty narrow but impressive swath of snow, eastern Iowa into into uh, uh, Wisconsin, places like Madison. Wisconsin can pick up over a half a foot of snow on Thursday, pretty cruddy uh, traveling conditions up that way. And another story has been the really unusual warmth in a lot of the country, especially the eastern United States, where places in the Ohio Valley will be in the in the 60s on Thursday, also some very strong wind gusts too. Could see some power outages and some uh, down trees in parts of the Ohio Valley on Thursday with wind gusts of 40 to 60 miles per hour. And then we're going to be looking at a uh, uh, potential for a snowstorm in the southern Appalachians in the uh, terrain uh, above maybe a thousand feet or so uh, Saturday night into Sunday night uh, this coming weekend. So we have to keep an eye on that. Places like Asheville, North Carolina, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Blacksburg, Virginia could experience uh, several inches at least of uh, heavy wet snow over the weekend. Yeah, it's starting to get windy here already. So it's going to be windy tomorrow, huh? Yeah, it's going to be on the windier side uh, in, in a lot of the country, especially the Ohio Valley, too. But certainly up by you, Sam, we've, you know, you'll be behind the front there in the front range and it'll be on the gustier side on Thursday. Uh, definitely, I think the strongest winds on Thursday are probably. Ohio, Indiana, that that zone where some some places might even gust to close to 70 miles per hour, and that's certainly enough to bring down some trees and cause some power outages. So definitely have a have a plan if you lose power um, in the Ohio Valley on Thursday and Thursday evening. Ooh. Okay, Doctor Joe, you've got some weather out your way in Memphis, haven't you? 
Yeah, it's just beginning to blow in. Hi, everybody. Uh, uh, we are just beginning to experience the high winds. We've had a couple of brief, fairly intense rain showers, and we are expecting uh, uh, a good chance of severe weather over the next few hours. Uh, windy conditions and all that sort of stuff. So uh, hopefully I won't lose power before we're uh, done chatting tonight. No, we're not going to allow that. I'm sorry. Well, I want to introduce our two guests tonight. We're going to talk more about disaster organizations and what they do and what we're doing. And first is Dr. Erica Havelka. She's with my agency, IDMC, and uh, is probably the busiest person I know. I thought it was Brian Froke. It, it's got to be Erica. Besides her full-time job, you know, she has a full-time job with the nonprofit. So, Erica, why don't you introduce yourself and tell them what you do and how you got started with IDNC. All right. Well, good evening, everyone, and um, thank you again for having me. Um, so, how did I get started? Um, kind of a complex answer to that. Um, like you said, I am a full-time emergency medicine physician um, in lo local community hospitals here. I, I do attend to four of them on a regular basis. And I've always had an interest in disaster medicine, um, but perhaps in the beginning of my career, not a whole lot of time. I was trying to raise my family at the same time that I was keeping, uh, like I said, this new time position. Um, so what I ended up doing during those years was just being very involved in my community. Um, I knew I couldn't at that point reach out to do um, things away from home, but I could certainly reach out to my community, be uh, involved in my hospitals and, and hospital uh, emergency preparedness and things of that nature. Um, so from that um, interest um, is that I ended up basically bumping into Mr. Tim Conley, um, who is the president of IDMC and one of the initial founders of, of the organization. So um, we met in, in a couple of different meetings, um, like I said, just from participation into my hospital own emergency management is that uh, we got introduced. Um, and he invited me to come on board to uh, be part of the consult um, um, in in medicine, basically, um, to help um, with disaster response uh, in everything that IBMC was involved. And initially, I came on board as kind of just listening on the side, see what I could learn, what I could contribute. Um, but shortly after, of course, um, uh, the incident with Russia and Ukraine came up, and we were pulled up to um, act. And uh, when that happened is that I actually saw myself more involved and uh, my role started growing significantly very quickly. Um, so um, at this point, um, I, I am actually the chief of uh, the international operations with IBMC um, because from the start, um, we knew we needed to get a strong grasp of what was going on and how we could help internationally um, since IBMC had been, for the most part, doing uh, initially more local, national um, work. And, uh, and this time around, we were trying to get our foot in the door and help out um, to those who were in desperate need, um, basically, across the world. So um, I saw it as an opportunity to uh, network 
as an opportunity to um, really show that we could do something. And uh, from that, um, everything else became history. Um, it took some time to just get all the stuff in a row and um, start networking, um, basically making a lot of phone calls, meeting a lot of wonderful people. And uh, like I said, the rest is history. That's when I met Sam and everybody else in IDMC. And since then, we haven't stopped. Indeed. In fact, when we look back at the two or three of us that started this organization, we never realized we are now an international responder. It's, it's pretty trippy. Well, Dr. Jerome Lee is with uh, Health Tech Without Borders, and I'd love to know. I don't even know your story, Jerome, and how you got started with them. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Jamie, for having me. And I feel like I might be one of the few folks here who's not from IDMC. Uh, maybe you guys should change the I to international now, since you guys are international. Um, so, I'm, <laughs> so I'm Jerome Lee. I'm one of the emergency medicine and ICU docs here in Boston. And I staff both EDs and ICUs. And my day job is helping to run some of our critical care ICUs across our nine hospital system. Um, but in addition to that, I also, um, I think a lot of folks uh, who listen to this podcast as well as you guys, uh, I am a medical officer with DMAT. Uh, I, was, I have been part of MA1 for over a decade now and have had a good amount of deployments under my belt. Uh, most recently, we were just out for Hurricane Ian, as you guys know, uh, down in Florida supporting um, uh, the response there. And then lastly, as you mentioned, Sam, I'm the co-founder of Health Tech Without Borders, and we are a global nonprofit that just started over the last year with the Ukrainian crisis. But we're really focused on supporting communities affected by sudden humanitarian emergencies, whether that's Ukraine or other parts in the world that we're supporting. Well, we're going to talk about those uh, very things. There's a lot going on in the world right now. You know, and, and guys like you, just amazed me, Jerome, because you have busy full-time jobs, and like Erica, you know, you're really devoted to the humanitarian cause, and we really appreciate people that do that. But you and Dr. Joe have a lot in common. You know, he's a USAR doc, and he's probably been—you've probably crossed paths <laughs> before at, at some of these incidents. So, Joe, I, I want to go back to you for a second before we jump into the topic, because I heard you— you sent me a photo, but I want to hear the story behind it. You guys uh, did a nice save lately? Well, it, it wasn't particularly around the nice save. So the, the photo I sent you was a little bit of news coverage. Uh, I uh, had an opportunity today working with one of my EMS services to uh, bring back uh, a couple of cardiac arrest survivors. Uh, that have been part of our pilot project for Heads Up CPR. Uh, we've had some pretty impressive results with about a 40-0% neurologically intact survival rate. Uh, and uh, it was an opportunity to, to bring those folks back together with the, the guys that did the work, uh, as well as a, um, uh, a chance to get a little media coverage, et cetera, uh, to, to, to hopefully move this along, move the needle on this a bit uh, with the general public. So. That was what that was all about today. Ah, oh, that's very cool. We love hearing that stuff. Well, we, we touched in a number of our podcasts with a number of IDMC people and others, you know, what we're doing. We haven't talked so much about the other agencies that we're coordinating with. 
like Health Tech Without Borders and Med Global and some of the other ones we've talked about. And it's been amazing, and Erica can vouch for this, because when we started this, we kind of felt we were on our own, and then we collaborated with one agency, and then another came along, and another came along, and some of them have become very entrenched in our organization. And, and we find that's a real plus, because we have different strengths that we can offer. Each agency has something a little different that they can throw into the mix, so we have a big, powerful group of people Many people, if you think about it. Um, so, I don't know, Erica, do you want to address how we are collaborating with some of the other agencies like your own? Absolutely. Um, so, when I mentioned that, you know, the startup of our uh, work internationally began back in March last year. Um, and honestly, it did, like I mentioned, just the, the combination of networking, making phone calls, and, and connecting people is what um, made us all come together. Um, so as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Jerome Lee was one of my first contacts um, that uh, began supporting um, what the, the endeavor that we were about to take up. Um, I actually ended up meeting him because as we saw the need to, to help um, overseas, but uh, n not really the ability to be able to get into the locations where the help was needed. I was actually looking for a way to bring telemedicine. Um, I saw that um, that may be a way that I could help uh, along with other people that were asking to see how we could be volunteering our services, our skills. And um, I started looking around for an established network because establishing our own internationally would have taken quite some time. And although we started the footprint for that, at the same time, I kept on just um, reaching out. And um, one call after another actually led me to um, to Dr. Jerome Lee. And when we started communicating, I, um, he, like I said, he was one of our first um, partners that came on board uh, with Health Tech Without Borders, um, being able to just be available and uh, bounce off ideas as to how we could get this service to, to help people in need at that time primarily in Ukraine um, and in Poland. And his uh, organization, he'll talk more about it, but it has been very helpful in, uh, in just providing not only information, but of course the telemedicine, the telemedicine aspect of things, um, but just also uh, disseminating the information that we have. And with the amount of support that his organization has, he was able to also help us out with uh, Ukrainian translation of um, teaching and training uh, that we had going on from our our own experts within IBMC. So we just knew that together we were making each other stronger. Um, so that was one phone call. But then, as said, you know, one entity led to another. And um, as um, uh, our president in IBMC would say that, you know, like all these NGOs, um, humanitarian groups, were all trying to work towards the same cause, but we were not linked. We were not connected. And so sometimes we were all trying to just do the same thing in a separate pot, and that was not effective. So what he saw and what he envisioned is that if we could all become a union of NGOs, a collaborative NGOs, and then humanitarian um, response teams, we could actually help each other be, be, become stronger. And that indeed is what has happened. Um, so now we are not only with Health Tech Without Borders, but we also have um, uh, basically become partners with the, the Ukraine Resistance Foundation, 
um, allied extract, um, definitely a, a lot. Uh, Med Global has been one of our very, very close partners as well, and um, many others. Um, we uh, ended up um, also reaching out and forming partnerships with logistics teams, not only here nationally, but um, internationally. Uh, and it, it was just a matter of linking us all together. Um, letting each other know what skills we could provide and how we could strengthen each other. And everybody was very happy to be in this collaborate because um, what they may have had as a weakness in their ability to deliver um, their care or their aid, um, another entity could provide it for them. And all we had to do was just communicate within our coalition that we had just formed. Um, so that's how we all came together. Um, and indeed, um, it has been very successful. We've been able to do a lot of things through this collaborative, um, including delivering training, education. We have deployed um, nursing staff. Who we're about to have another deployment with um, hazmat training. Uh, and, and like I said, a lot of video training uh, with Ukrainian translations, the ability to also have telemedicine involved. Um, the newest thing and one that we're working on, but we're very um, proud of at this point as a hopeful um, startup of mobile clinics with the help of uh, telemedicine as well in this mobile clinic so we can reach out farther and more people. Jerome, you want to add to that? Yeah, thanks, Sam. I'll say that the collaboration with IDMC has been amazing. Thank you all again. Special thank you. And, you know, collaboration is key, right? Key. I, I want to say that again. We sort of all come together and act as force multipliers for what we need to do. And no one you know, is alone in this world and in this work that we do. And so no one should be doing this work alone and we could all help each other. Um, I want to say that, you know, it's amazing um, to see this community, uh, international, local, regional, even national community that has really come together to support not just Ukraine, but all these humanitarian efforts, but Ukraine especially. It's great to see that Everyone wants to come together, right? And so if I could share uh, two quick stories, you know, one is when we started Health Tech Without Borders, we were looking to support Ukraine with digital health, telemed. And within a few days, we got, you know, hundreds of clinician volunteers signing up to help immediately. And that also included 20 to 30 uh, telemed digital health companies that all wanted to offer their tech pro bono to support Ukraine and the crisis that was happening, right? It's great. It's, I think it actually makes me feel better that everyone does want to help. And sometimes you just don't really know how to unless the right avenues are there. Um, for us, I will say that I think we have so many partners that if I try to name them, I will miss some and I will miss a lot of them. We also have a lot of personal connections and channels into Ukraine and other places that, you know, we work with and support that are not part of NGOs, but sort of still part of our network. And as also, there's a lot of silent partners that work with us. Indeed, what do you think about all that, Joe? Sorry, mute button. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think it says an awful lot. One to the the quality of organization and and the the ability to uh, get folks to step up and do the right thing. Uh, you know, we certainly see that uh, throughout all sorts of disaster work, right? From from the USAR side to the DMAT side. You know, that that's sort of more on the 
official FEMA response side, but there are so many uh, amazing additional organizations out there that just make such a huge impact uh, to the folks that are uh, dealing with the, the, the problem in the first place and uh, the ability of the, the official uh, governmental response is never enough and, and it, it couldn't get done without the addition of all these agencies just like this one. Well, and that's the thing. When you're out there with USAR, you certainly cross paths with a lot of these NGOs and with your own being a D-matter like myself was. Um, it's hard to believe that you didn't cross paths somewhere along the way. And that's a good thing. I, I like we to say that. I, sure. I, I bet it wouldn't surprise me at all. We probably have. Um, <laughs> Jamie, any thoughts or questions? I'm just really intrigued by just all of the ways that um, organizations have been able to come together for the the major operational challenges that are, that you meet when going into a place like Ukraine with an active war involved. Um, and I'm curious, um, I, I guess, me, either for Erica or, or Jerome would would be uh, having a question regarding some of maybe explaining some of the challenges, unique challenges that you faced in that type of a situation that's different from, say, going into an area that's ravaged by a severe storm or uh, some other kind of uh, natural disaster. Ron, you want to take that one? Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to start. Um, I'll first say that, you know, uh, our group, Help Tech Without Borders, uh, even though we have we work with a lot of NGOs with boots on the ground, we don't have any boots on the ground over there directly as part of our direct team, right? We talk to folks and work with folks uh, there uh, pretty regularly. Um, I'll say that, you know, a um, lot of unique things to think about, of course. Um, some of the pros with Ukraine is that they're very digitally savvy to start. So that was very helpful for what we do, where they had a digital infrastructure, you know, broadband access, internet, and people sort of have bought into technology, which is very helpful for what we wanted to accomplish. And that's not true of a lot of other places in the world. However, you know, there's a lot of considerations around because we are purely digital for what we do is the cybersecurity aspect as well. Um, I know that a lot of our partners, um, NGO partners that do send boots on the ground, folks in the support, of course, security is a, a big issue. And I know it's a big issue in many areas, but I think it's definitely different when you're entering an active war zone. Erica, do you wanna add on to that? Um, yes, I echo that. And I, definitely that security part, I think, is what's been the most challenging um, because we know we want to be there. We know we want to help um, our volunteers. As a matter of fact, um, there was a point where we said, well, maybe we will need to cancel this deployment because uh, safety is going to be a little bit of a problem here. There might be, you know, more worrisome activity going on right now. And my volunteer said, just send me. It's like, if you don't send me, I still want to go. So um, they have their heart, uh, of course, um, uh, in the right place, trying to help people as much as they can. And um, I think that that has been one of the, the biggest challenges, that they want to be there. We all want to be there. We want to help. And it just makes it hard, of course, you know, to make sure that we stay safe. Um, 
because if we're not there, then, you know, like if, if we don't stay safe, then who's going to be able to go from, you know, from our perspective from here, you know, for the, the, the group that we're trying to, you know, continue to um, grow and make sure that stay strong uh, till the end and beyond. So um, that's definitely been a challenge. The other one has been probably the logistical effort of bringing um, necessary items to the site uh, where they're needed most. Um, it is, uh, you know, sometimes not in the safest areas where we have to uh, drop off uh, needed materials or medical equipment. And um, that has been the other challenge. It's not like we can just run it over there, um, deliver it right at the spot. Uh, it is a matter of safety and sometimes the transportation of it. Um, so those two have been uh, biggest, the biggest challenges from what I have been experiencing and seeing. And if it's okay, I'll, oh, could I add one more other quick yes, thing? Yes, absolutely. Um, just also as a quick story, we it's we had a lot of volunteers during um, one of our you know multiple webinar sessions that was sort of asked uh, by our some clinicians within. For example, we ran a whole austere war related burn care series, and a lot of our speakers are um, you know amazing speakers and know their field well, but have never really seen this, and most of us haven't seen this, right? And I'll say that during one of the sessions, it was pretty jarring to see that you know the we. Could sort of hear the air raid alarms, uh, you know, go off on their side via our webinar series, and then they all sort of hid, and then most likely we also saw a detonation. Um, but I think it did um, affect a lot of our team that was on that call. Uh, I certainly, it certainly would. Uh, talk about realism. Becky, any thoughts or questions from you? Yeah, so oftentimes after disasters, you know, there's a, an outpouring of support from the community and, and you know, the form of, of supplies, materials, cash. What, in your experience, has, has, have you found to be, like, the most useful form of donation? Often we hear, you know, cash is king, and that's, you know, what allows you to do your job most effectively in terms of, like, how the community can support other communities after disasters. Erica, you want to take that one? Sure. Um... I think one of the, um, well, what would make it easier it would definitely be uh, cash. And uh, the reason for that is that a lot of times what is needed um, could actually be purchased in the surrounding areas, in the surrounding countries. And that would be a lot cheaper than trying to get it from the U.S., even if it was donated over to Ukraine. Um, when we're talking about Ukraine, as of lately, we've been starting to get involved with other areas um, that we'll talk about probably a little bit later. But uh, up until now, uh, since the focus had been Ukraine for IDMC, um, certainly with uh, funding, um, items could be purchased that were needed and sometimes are not donated. Um, and we could actually purchase them nearby to be delivered uh, expeditiously rather than waiting for for anything coming from the U.S. all the way. Um, aside from that, of course, there is a lot of, in the beginning, there was a lot of uh, medical equipment that was needed um, and um, just even safety items uh, for first responders and, and whatnot. And, and that was uh, very helpful, and it was easy to actually transport uh, thanks to our logistic partners that we have. Um, but certainly, like I said, the, the thing that uh, would make it easier sometimes to provide some of these needed items would be the funding to just purchase them nearby. Jamal? 
Yeah, I'll echo those comments that, you know, cash is important and medical equipment, especially during the beginning and continuously still now that um, we get to try to help out um, by moving them into Ukraine. However, for us, uh, we were a little unique in that we are, you know, we were focused on digital health telemed. So we were really looking at time and talent, right? What made us work wasn't money. And in many ways, uh, we are looking for cash donations now, as opposed to we didn't really need them before, because we needed a volunteer base of experts, clinicians, doctors, who are willing to, you know, see patients. And then we needed the technology to be um, offered in kind, which is what we got. And big companies as well, you know, like Microsoft, I'll say, has an amazing disaster response, like programming team that have been amazing. Um, the telemed platform that we're primarily using within Ukraine is called Doctor Online. That is a Ukrainian program built, run um, pre-war that turned pro bono with us post-war with our volunteers to support the, um, the community. Uh, so, and then lastly, you know, uh, there's other companies like VC2, which also does a lot of telemed. We're not using them as much in Ukraine, but we needed sort of the time, talent, and kind support for us to function. It was actually less about cash initially. Dan, thoughts or questions? Well, the one thing that I was going to ask, and it's related to one of the things that we were actually just chatting about here on on the side in our chat as we do this episode here is, is the um, USAR teams in Turkey. And I was going to ask more about uh, on that side of things about how from a weather perspective, obviously it's winter time in, in, in Turkey and there's been temperatures that are well below freezing. A lot of the um, area that's been impacted, I was just going to be, be interested to know like how, how weather and specifically temperatures that where you're, if you're out in those temperatures for an extended period of time, significantly impact your chances of survival, sort of how that impacts the uh, recovery operation. Well, you just segued into my next topic. Uh, Joe, do you want to answer that one first? That's right. <laughs> uh, sure, I'll be I'll be happy to do that. We do have uh, two uh, federal uh, USAR teams uh, in Turkey actively working. Um, the it, to the weather question, uh, I, I think cold weather can um, uh, be a pro and a con. Uh, it, 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 obviously, extremes of weather make things much more challenging. Um, the uh, temperatures that are there now don't seem to be too uh, extreme. Uh, and so that may actually benefit um, potential survivors uh, in the rubble there. It also makes the uh, a, a little bit easier on the folks doing the work, obviously, uh, less chance of overheating, uh, dehydration, et cetera. So it can work in your favor until it gets near the extremes, and then it uh, is significantly detrimental on survival. Well, we can all agree that that was a major, major humanitarian. I mean, we don't even know the outcome yet. So far, I think there are up to 12,000 people uh, that didn't survive, and, and, you know, there's many more to go. I yeah, know. I, I don't think know. that number will continue to rise pretty substantially. Do you think, Joe, from your USAR experience, that anybody who's still in the rubble is, is survivable? Uh, I think we are going to rapidly approach the point of diminishing returns there. Uh, looking at the, uh, the the construction of those structures and the damage uh, done to them by the power of this earthquake, uh, I think uh, – the, the chance of uh, additional survivors being dug out is going to be uh, in the, you know, the tens 
uh, of people as opposed to lots and lots of folks that are going to be found alive, unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately. Well, you know, we're all digging in to see where we can help with Turkey, but it's a brand new project. Um, So we'll have a lot more on that later. But before we wind down, um, Jerome, you have a little project going on with Asper. Can we talk about that a bit? Uh, Yeah, just I'll spend a few minutes on it. Uh, So, you know, right before when uh, COVID was about to hit, I think a lot of folks within the U.S. government and otherwise knew that it's unfortunately probably going to affect our hospitals, especially the hospitals within areas that did not have intensive care unit beds, which is a big you know, swath of the U.S. And there's also a lot of areas like uh, medical deserts that don't even have access to really hospital beds. But a lot of these hospitals also do not have ICUs. And, uh, you know, as the so the idea and we saw this was unfortunately the referral centers, the the big hospitals, academic centers and um, referral centers all filled, a lot of the hospitals in these smaller areas would be stuck with taking care of um, critically ill, probably COVID patients. And so the idea was to stand up a telecritical care consult service to support these critical access hospitals across the nation. And uh, of course, like any other government program, it's called the Net, it's called NETSIN. It's a lot of letters. It's the National Emergency Telecritical Care Network that was funded out of the CARES Act and run out of the DOD. Um, and it was a great program. I was honored to be a part of it and it continues to, you know, uh, work today and that uh, it's covered over about 40 plus hospitals and i think uh, in total we covered over 5,000 patient care days across 13 united states in the u.s states as well as territories and this was at no cost to any of the individual hospitals that needed it and uh more recently the dod and asper have come together around that and to figure out what uh, how to make this uh you know for all hazards as well and not just uh you know covid and critical care Wow, it's a big project. What do you think, Joe? We know about this. Absolutely, it's a big project. But, but, you know, I think it's a place where technology really can shine. And uh, I think some of the work that's being done, particularly in Ukraine, uh, with the um, leverage of technology um, is really showing us new ways to get things done. Uh, And and the importance of that information technology infrastructure to manage disasters. Yes, and we know all about those federal government acronyms. (laughs) Indeed. Jamie, you have a question. Yeah, before we wrap up, um, Jerome, I'm really curious. You know, one of the things that I am really wondering is how much of our telemedicine change is going to be sticky in the community. And and if 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 that is a way to describe it, but um, you know, how much of this is here to stay because we really made a quick shift to using telemedicine in a lot of places. And it seems like it was largely successful. Uh, Do you see this as one of those situations where we just aren't going to go back to the way things were because it's, it, we kind of forced us to make us a leap forward. Yeah, that's a great question. And I do. I actually think you are spot on where, you know, we made the leap because the technology has always been there, right? In this day and age, the technology is not the barrier for us accessing healthcare. It's really everything else. And I was one of the folks that, uh, you know, pre-COVID, I'm like, oh, telemed's kind of cool. But you know what? 
I'm not going to do anything about it unless we need to. And then COVID hit, and it's one of the probably silver linings of COVID that showed that telemedicine um, and digital health work well and has to work well for the right use cases and the right scenarios, of course. It's not going to work well for all scenarios. And so, for example, like if we look at the data and we're talking about non-disasters that I think will apply for disasters, uh, a lot of mental health, you know, uh, psych visits and everything else for patients are, have gone remote and stayed remote and will probably stay remote. And at least uh, we were recently looking at our Massachusetts data that was just released by the state. Um, and uh, mental health visits actually went up during COVID. Men with that, it, it means that we have more access, right? Uh, because people can get to their physicians or clinicians much easier with uh, digital health means. Um, but the cost also didn't go up for what um, they reported. And I, I suspect that's going to continue with a lot of the different services and medical care that we can still deliver that remotely. Um, I think that the other big part of this is that technology, like I said, has always been there. And now that we can embrace it, we can use it to close a lot of the gaps, including in the humanitarian space, right? I feel like we haven't really done it uh, for hurricanes or you know, the Ukraine war or anything else um, in any other humanitarian disaster previous either. And so in this space too, uh, there's been a slow adoption of technology and hopefully this will be the change for us to use it. Amazing. Becky, you, uh, you are a user of telemedicine, are you? actually have been for uh, a while. I was on a trip once back in 2018 and came down with a horrible ear infection um, and had to fly the next day. So that was the first time I used it. It wasn't a great experience and it's improved significantly since then. So I can certainly see the the benefit um, really, I think, to, to what Jerome was saying, but to really to make it equitable for you know a lot more people, equitable and, and accessible, um, all kinds of healthcare really. Wow. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's it's a thing, and I, I agree with your own. I think it's here to stay, and it, it needs to be, because what would we do with communications with Ukraines and training and all the things we're trying to do if we already have that? Dan, any final thoughts? No, I, I agree with that comment there about the telemedicine. Uh, I think it's great to see the how far it's come, and I think, obviously, like, like anything else, there's a good place for it, and also there's time that it's best to see someone in person too but it's clearly like it, it's like the, the current hybrid world we're in where uh, we have a lot more opportunities to do work remotely that's great but there's also things that need to be done in person too but having that really makes it more accessible for more people which is really a great thing for everyone indeed yes thank you COVID, for that one um erica we're going to let you have the last word here well um First of all, I, I do agree with all of you and what you're saying regarding um, telemedicine. And I can just see right now, uh, you know, the same way that children currently don't seem to know what it is to live without a cell phone. I'm pretty sure then maybe another five years or, you know, a little bit longer, people will not know what to do without telemedicine. And, and they will, you know, certainly take it as just part of life. And, and that's how things get done. And they are more efficient than they used to be. Um, but hopefully, indeed, we won't lose that. Uh, ability to also uh, realize that there's some aspects of medicine that really still benefit from that patient-doctor uh, interaction, patient-clinician patient interaction. Um, we all definitely need that uh, connection. 
Uh, but aside from that, um, I'm just um, thankful that you guys have us on today. Um, thank you again for, you know, inviting me. Um, I, you know, I'm just uh, whoever um, is currently reaching, just know that um, we are still going strong. We have a lot to do. There's a, um, a lot more help that is needed. And um, if anyone is interested in either volunteering, has skills, has uh, donations or anything else of that sort, um, please visit our website. Um, there's always opportunity. Uh, and there's definitely always going to be somebody that is um, grateful for what we're doing um, when we're trying to do this work. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Erica. We appreciate you being here. And we'll get to Ron's information here in a minute. But, you know, one thing about these NGOs, and, and now we're going from a, a, a war to a very bad humanitarian disaster with the earthquake in Turkey. So we learn something every day, don't we, Jamie? We do, and it's the, it's that ongoing learning that's so important to to keep us moving forward and and continuing to be better prepared for the next thing that that is going to happen. Because that is one thing that in the disaster response industry and disaster response circles, we know that uh, there is something else around the corner. We don't know necessarily what it's going to be, but there's always something. And uh, that earthquake in Turkey and Syria has certainly brought that to the forefront. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're very thankful that Dr. Joe and the Paragon Medical Education Group are, are our sponsors for the Disaster Podcast. They have been since the very beginning, helping us bring this episode and all the episodes to our listeners every single week um, with some great topics and great guests. Um, Joe, where can people find out more about what Paragon does? Uh, I know you guys provide just such great experiential training and various levels uh we do indeed jamie uh folks can find us on the web at paragon medical education group or uh through facebook uh paragon medical group uh or always to the disaster podcast and uh, i will mention that every disaster uh presents a new learning opportunity and a chance for innovation as we've just heard from our guests tonight that is definitely true. Um, Jerome, where can folks find out more about Health Tech Without Borders, how to, how to help out or get involved in some way? Of course. Um, you know, anyone's always welcome to reach out to me directly. It's just my first name, Jerome, J-A-R-O-N-E dot Lee, L-E-E -E, at healthhtwb.org. And our website is www.htwb.org, Health Tech Without Borders. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on the show and, and also to you as well, Erica. I know um, we always uh, have a link. Seems like recently we've had a couple of guests on from IDMC, but that's IDMC.us for folks that want to check out IDMC's website and how to get involved there. Um, Becky, where can folks find you? Uh, over on Twitter at WXBEX and uh, the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. And Dan? I'm also on Twitter, WXDepo, D-E-P-O, and the and the Disaster Podcast uh, Facebook group. Fantastic. And Sam? All the aforementioned under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 and on the DisasterPodcast.com website. Jamie? 
People can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations, so please friend or follow me there, and I look forward to hearing from you. And, of course, uh, don't forget that you can subscribe to the show over at DisasterPodcast.com. There are links to do so on your favorite mobile device or even by email right below the audio player on every episode page, so definitely check that out. Um, Sam, great job pulling this episode together. I think uh, the the technical aspects and the use of technology in disaster response and in helping out with major situations around the world is something we haven't touched on before. So it's a great topic for the, the podcast tonight. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, what amazes me is what Jerome was saying earlier, that, you know, all these very busy, high-end medical folks are always coming to the floor to be there in whatever form they can be there to help these NGOs and other organizations meet the needs of people that, that need them. So it's just astounding to me. And, you know, the, the more we get into it here, the more we see that. So there will be a lot more forthcoming on what's going on with Turkey and, and, and everything else that we're doing. So thank you, Jerome and Erica, and we'll be talking to you again.